again and welcome to Unplug It. Back for our third show for 2020. Plenty to talk about. The AFLW season in full swing. A heartbreaking defeat, unfortunately, last weekend. And uh, some really significant matchups ahead for the, the men's side as well with Collingwood this weekend. Our last hit out before the Kangaroos in round one. And obviously the breaking news around the China game, which is no more. That returns to a conventional home game at Marvel Stadium on the 7th of June. And hopefully, given the Saints have lost a fair bit of cash out of this China deal, we can get lots of fans along to that one to pack the joint out and at least help ease the squeeze on the revenue. Darren Parkin is my name, Aaron McGrath, and Nick Splitter with me every week. Nick, first of all, thank you. Yeah, thanks, mate. It's uh, been a big week. It's all, I guess it's always a big week at this time of year. Looking forward to what's coming next. And, uh, yeah, we've got a lot to talk about. We certainly do, and, and obviously that, that Port game front and centre in a moment, but H, nice to have you with us as well. Yes, great to be back. Uh, yeah, that Port game being changed to my birthday, coincidentally, so <laughs> I still probably won't be able to make it to the game, even even though it's a lot closer than what it was originally. Yeah, I mean, we probably knew before we even did our first show this year that this was going to happen. Um, we believed that it would probably be Marvel, but then there was talk for a while that maybe it would be Cairns, because I think St Kilda were trying to sell that to the Queensland government in an attempt to make some of that money that they've lost out of the, the Port Adelaide deal. But um, football-wise, it's not a bad result to be playing at Marvel. We haven't played Port there since 2013, um, but obviously financially it's a bit of a kick. Yeah, well, I think if we can get if we get 40000 there, it's probably probably helped the coffers a little bit. But it is, in, in a footy sense, it's, it's a, a big win for us. Uh, like I said, we haven't played Port in Melbourne since 2013, was it? Yeah. Yeah, so I think it gives us a greater chance of... of you know, getting the four points, the the money thing is, I guess, at, at that stage, nearly irrelevant. Um, right now, the, the the big thing is getting a win and, and banking those points. Yeah, and it basically puts nine of our first 11 at Marvel now. Mm. Yep. So really got to get a good amount of wins out of those to try and launch into the second half of the season. Um, that's, that's one game we can... Over there, we're probably going to go, okay, we saw what happened last year and what their record is there and how we're going to go, but... Back it up, Marvel. Now it's a bit more of a game that we can look and go. Let's win that. I think we had the coronavirus last year, didn't we? <laughs> we had it before everyone else did. Uh, so Twelve months ago, it was a bit of a, the toilet paper's gone. Yeah, it was a disastrous trip for us last time around. But yes, yeah, so I think the only thing is it's moved, hasn't it? So we still have the buy, or we, we play when we would have had the buy. Is that right? And we have the buy when we would have played. I think that's how it worked. Yeah, yeah. because um, it was scheduled for the thirty-first of May, yeah, switched. which I think yeah, is now yeah. a buy, and then we play the following week, yeah. and then go straight to. Townsville Darwin. Is it? or Darwin for the mm. Gold Coast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounded like the uh, Queensland government didn't want to pony up the cash. Yeah, <clears throat> fair Which enough. Might might turn out to be a win for us anyway. So, well, that's right. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, if you, whilst it is seven hundred thousand uh, dollars, you are obviously angling towards the the four points, and Port will, will probably be in a similar position to us, sort of fighting for hopefully spots in the in the lower yeah. part of the eight. So, well, basically, if we're playing good football, we'll. Make that catch up anyway. Yeah, that's that's what we need to aim for. It looks like, and that's the uh, the, the side that oh, there's a lot of sides I'd like to be, but at the moment I wouldn't mind beating Port based on all of that recent history. So mm. we played them at the start of 2012, and they beat us by a kick in one of the most poorly umpired games I've ever seen. Uh, 2013, I think they were 10 goals up at Marvel. We came back and hit the front, and mm. they beat us by a kick again. Uh, obviously, 20. 16 at the start of the year, we probably lost that game due to playing no practice match in Queensland and we ran out of gas and they overran us from four goals up. Then the Robbie Gray game the yeah. following year in yeah. 2017. We'll, we call it the, the Paddy Ryder game now. Oh yeah, the Paddy Ryder game. And then this this disaster last year in 
in China, we've had some some pretty frustrating losses to Port. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, it'd be good to get him back here just just to see the difference in what we'll be able to put on the field and new players that we've brought in. He'll as he looked great the other night. He's going to love playing at Marvel um, and. Just, just a bit more pace because I think they're, they're a little bit of a slower side. Mm. Um, if we can break their lines and uh, basically beat them with a bit of pace, I think we can get them. What were our thoughts on the Hawthorne game? Obviously a solid showing. We were expected to probably win given the occasion, but but good to get it done. Yeah, yeah, it was a good night down Moravin. Um, not, oh, it's going to be a bit different to what the old days were, obviously. It's, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Not, not as feral, not as... Um, <laughs> No animal enclosure. I think they had a bit more beer back then, though. Yeah. Um, apparently, it all ran out. I think it ran out uh, pretty early as well. Yeah. yeah. And then uh-huh. they, I think they did a slab run, uh, or a bottle-o run, bought a few more slabs, yeah, and then right. ran out again. So. Yeah. Oh, luckily, luckily there's a few bottle-o's around there. Actual carton draft tents. So I was a bit like, okay. When I heard that, I thought it was a bit strange. Yeah, but yeah I saw a few people with um, the Great Northern, whatever they were. Yeah. So I, thought, I think well, that was the least, two beers, carton yeah. draft and Great Northern. There's, yeah. least there's still something there, I guess, but yeah. um, obviously not catering to the what people wanted. What I think happened was they sold out the AFL, well, not sold out, but got a full house at the AFLW game the week before, and, and they they must have had probably the same amount of grog and mm. thought this will be all right. But you got a Sunday afternoon sort of family session. Yeah. Then you've got a, a Thursday night. All adults. Oh, yeah, all, all of the yeah. all the old-timers rocking up. Yeah. Yeah, there was clearly going to be more yeah. cans I, drunk on that game. The numbers game. were reported as very similar, but I reckon yeah. there was probably more at the Hawthorne game. Probably. Um, yeah. I think so. It, it felt yeah. a lot tighter and a lot more um, compacted with with fans. There was not as many, because a lot of people were sitting down at the AFLW. Um, it, it was mainly standing for the Marsh series. Um, so I, I reckon the number might have been a little bit, um, I don't know, it was one high, one low, not, not 100% certain. Mm. What do we make of Max? It looks likely. Hmm. I, I was really impressed, actually, with the way that we moved the ball throughout the game. I thought we we moved the ball quickly. We tried to play on. Uh, you know, we were very slick in, hmm. in possession and and on offense. Uh, it was something that I think was a, a clear, distinct difference from at times over the last couple of years. Obviously, when when Rats took over, you know, kind of for the final third of of last season, uh, we kind of saw that start to happen. But it was it was a lot more clear in, in this game against Hawthorne. Uh, just, just how, how high a priority Rats and, and the team have put on moving the ball quickly and, and really, mm. you know, working on those structures to allow them to play on and, and move the ball, be direct, um, you know, quick hand pass, short mm. kicks, long kicks down the wing. Give to play a running towards exactly. goal, not, not and picking the ball up and going, oh, there's and someone the back skill, there. Yeah. And the skill to be able to kick it into space where you know someone's able to run onto it, mm. um, which is something that we haven't done a lot in the last couple of years. And that was, it was really impressive, even just in, in that, um, practice match environment, I guess, to, to see, you know, a, an uptick in skill level and, and pace of play. Yeah. I mean, Hill's first kick into the forward line only a couple of minutes into straight onto Membry's chest. It was yeah, sort of beautiful. like, I'm done for the night already. There we go. <laughs> Take him off. Yep. Take him off. <laughs> no, he was good, Membry, too. I think he had 24 and took 14 marks or something like that mm. and, and kicked four goals. Um, and, and really showed why he's yeah. so highly rated within the club as a leader. I think it was it would have been easy for a lot of those guys to kind of rest on their laurels and and go you know Hanabry's out Geary's out etc. But for him to kind of lead from the front, um, you know, we're we're so used to that we we had that with Rewalt for so long that I think there's been a, a a bit of a gap over the last few years in the forward line and and I really think that he's ready to step up and and take that mantle. He'll be our number one forward this year. 
Yep. Um, you can't expect Max King to be a number one forward. I think he'll be a number two or three forward for us. Yeah. Mm. Um, but Membry looks like he's in for a big yeah. year. But at the same time, they, the team that was disabled in the last pod, the, whoever we play can't just go, oh, King's only a first-year player. Yeah, exactly. He's going to clunk marks and yeah, kick absolutely. goals every week. Absolutely. Um, so someone has to go onto him, which yep. it's going to – yeah, the second best defender is going to sit on one of them every week. Yeah. Didn't right. see a lot of the second Hawthorne game. Did we see Jimmy Webster in that? Because obviously there's there's no one on the injury list at the moment. The official injury list has no names on it. Yeah. Uh, he's I mean, sort of the forgotten man. He, he hardly played in the second half of last year with sort of back and yeah. wrist and various other issues mm. that he had along the way. But, um, yeah, he's, he's one that you sort of see in that defensive end. If you've got Geary, Carlisle, Howard, Dylan Robertson, obviously mm. back into the fold, Savage sort of running off there as Huffield, well. Austin. Yeah, um, where sort of where he fits into the mould, because I don't mind him as a player. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if he did play. I, I heard he was going to, Yeah, but um, I didn't see anything apart from score updates every now and then. And yeah. I mean, they weren't. After a while, I went, I'm not going to bother looking at them anymore. Yeah, sort I, was, of thing. And, I was listening. So I don't recall hearing his name at all, mm. if not often. But, uh, yeah, that commentary was uh, was pretty frustrating itself. I remember I turned that off halfway through the third quarter. I just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, I think the moment they said at the start that they were looking forward to watching Jade Gresham play when he was in action the following <laughs> night. Looks, looks oh, the likely, same night, I think, in the likely, state I'll, I'll wait and watch a couple of hours later, obviously. Yeah, they, were, <laughs> they might have had the TV on in the box or, or something like that. But, uh, yeah, that they were... They were pretty sharp in that in that first game. We've got Collingwood this week, who I imagine will field a strongish team because obviously Grundy and Pendlebury and all that played in the Origin game. So they'll play no Trelaw, who's pinged a hammy. Um, but, I mean, it doesn't matter too much. But, yeah, I mean, I think we'll see Hanabry for the first time uh, in one of these matches. Jones, uh, Zach Jones, who... Yeah, who played who, the other day, I think. But... Zach Jones was the one, I think, in the second mm. Hawthorne game. He had yep. 34 touches or something. Yeah. So Good to see him in a proper hit out, though, and... And it'll finalise something that resembles the best twenty-two. I think it'll be pretty close to the best, the best unit lining up this week. Maybe a few extras. Do they rest case, Howard and Gresham, who have played twice? So they played the first game and then the state game. Um, Hill, sorry, Hill and Gresham. Maybe Hill, maybe Hill. I think you just got to get. I think you just play Gresham. You got to play him. Um, yeah, I think he's one I, of those types. It just needs needs the run out. Needs the. He played. Mainly forward for those games anyway. So yeah. with if Hill doesn't play, put him into the middle for a yeah. bit and see see how he goes there. And then, I mean that gives us an idea of the coverage we have, and mm. um, it, it gives him against a good midfield. That, well, I think the whole idea yeah. of of bringing guys like Butler and, and you know you've got Kent coming back, Jack Loney's in, seems to be in good form. That Gresham can play more through the midfield, mm. and so I, I imagine that they play him and give him those midfield minutes. Yeah. Uh, because he will need to get those Ks up before, yeah. before you'll, basically, you'll basically be able to play switch yeah. either wherever they need him at that yeah. time and that sort of thing. So, yeah. yeah. The interesting one will be where we think Luke Dunstan might fit into the uh, that midfield. He finished last season quite well. Uh, do you look at, obviously, the, the mix? He's not always an automatic selection, but you feel like he's good enough to. I'd have him in there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I um, thought he was pretty automatic by the end of the year. Mm. Yeah. Um, watching the other night against Hawthorne, he was in there getting hard ball. Knocking, hitting it out, handballing it out, just just getting in there and getting it, and that's that's basically what he is there for. I he think seemed, it, late last year he seemed to be better at that kind of spread and ground coverage as well. Mm. He seemed to move a bit better. I don't know if he dropped some weight or, or what it was, or whether his running technique had been worked on throughout the year, or whether it was just having the freedom of a slightly different role under under Brett Ratton. Yeah. And, but he he did seem to cover the ground better. His disposal looked better. He kicked a couple of goals in a few of those. Mm. You know, a few of those um, late season games and just seemed to be more dangerous mm. all around. And, and 
I would have him in, in our best 22, uh, undoubtedly, at this stage. The AFLW girls last week, so very good win against Melbourne. So since we've last spoke, they've had their first win. They certainly should have had a second. It was a pretty costly game. that They lose and go one and three in a short season, but they've only got three three or four games to, to rectify that, and they lose players to uh, to injury as well. So I think it showed that even though the Gold Coast have been all right, it showed that we're the best of the new teams, of the of the growth teams. And I think had we not, we, we should have beaten Adelaide, we mm-hmm. should have beaten Fremantle, yep. and we're effectively jumped maybe stage fright in the first game against the Bulldogs. So yep. one and three should have been three and one and could have been four and oh. Yes, we definitely should have beaten Adelaide and we should have beaten Frio. That, like you said, that that Bulldogs one, they jumped us at the start and that was mm-hmm. a bit of experience and inexperience on our end. Because they're not yeah. that good, the doggies. They're, they're not. And realistically, in, in a slightly different universe, this team could be three and one or four and zip even. They've, they've played well enough in patches of all of those games to have won all of them. Yeah, that was just nervousness at the start of the first game. It looks like um, they yeah, haven't conceded the same. They've pretty much let out the box the next three games when you yeah. look at it. So I think what, what the Bulldogs scored in that first 10 minutes is, is what, what they the won by, basically. scored yeah. against them in the three other games. And what they won by, yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it's just settling in and getting knowing, – knowing getting an even four quarters instead mm. of oh, – a terrible first quarter and three good ones or three good ones and not a great bad last quarter like against Adelaide. It's just getting the consistent four quarters. They might not be the world-beating four quarters, but they're good enough to get four good ones together. Mm. I think just knowing that they're good enough for long enough to compete against those good teams. I mean, Adelaide consensus, one of the better teams in the competition. Mm. Fremantle, one of the favourites for the AFLW Premiership this year. Yeah, Only got, undefeated team. Yeah. Mm, shouldn't be, but... They shouldn't be. Yeah. They're, they're a quality outfit. And and we took it up to them for, you know, three and, three a, and half a half quarters, quarters. Yep. really, in both of those games. Yeah. Um, even in the Adelaide game when they started to get on top, we still threw a bit at them in that last quarter. They just overran us. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it's it's been very impressive despite the, the three losses. Key moments, obviously, the Adelaide one that was touched on the line when you're probably about to seal the game. And obviously the, the 50 against Fremantle where mm. it's six points of difference with a couple of minutes to go. I know a few people have spoken about it. Peter Searle was one. Um, it's clearly, as the rules of the game are written, a 50-metre penalty. I was, yeah. I was watching the game on silence and saw that and immediately sort of threw my head back thinking that's 50. The only thing I will debate is whether 50-metre penalties are too harsh, mm. full stop. So not just in women's football where, where maybe not every player kicks it that distance, so it's almost two kicks mm. sometimes as a penalty. But I think... In football in general. So in the AFL, if you, in, in the men's AFL, I think it should be a 50 metre penalty if it's something intentional. Yeah, so you deliberately delib- hold someone yeah. up, you flatten yeah. them, you, you belt yeah. them. But if it's something like walking across the mark. Or throwing the ball back. Or a, la- yeah, like half a metre. Yeah, or a lapsing like, concentration. Yeah, yeah. So you put the ball on the ground, which you're not allowed to do. Um, to me, that's 15, in all footy, yeah. 15, 15 or 25, 25 yep. even, yeah. Which, yeah. which is still a gettable shot at the end of that, but it's obviously not a, an absolute. Mm. Lay down was there. So. Yeah, it uh, it has a fair bit of merit that sort of thing. Mm. I mean, it, it used to be fifteen meters for everything. Yeah, that was. Um, I think Kevin Sheedy exploited that yep. in the eighties mm. when they kept playing Hawthorne, where they deliberately hold, hold a player every up. time yep. they took a mark, and they'd be eighty const- out. And yeah, it'd be a fifteen meter penalty, it'd be nothing, but it would give them time so, to get yeah. players back. So. Still two kicks. Well, still two kicks, two goal mm. in that situation, but yeah, change it, and then they're kicking from right in front, basically. So, mm. yeah, it's it's maybe something they could look at at some stage. Yeah, good to see that sort of atmosphere at Moorabbin as well. We've got the new G train that obviously won us the game against the uh, yeah, rising against star. the D's. Rising star. Yeah. Second, second for the year. Second for the year. So there's a lot of positives, but 
Yeah, I mean, it's in a seven-game season, it's a, unfortunately a pretty crippling loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got Carlton this week, who are a pretty good team. Um, not, not unbeatable, though. No, Collingwood dismantled them. I mean, if you work it out on balances, mm. Collingwood beat Carlton, Melbourne beat Collingwood, we beat Melbourne. So <laughs> uh, Fremantle also beat Collingwood, and, and we uh, should have beaten Fremantle. Mm. So mm. it obviously puts you into that mix for, for those matches. I think we few, actually play the Pies at some stage. At last week. Victoria Park. A few ex-Blues yeah. running around for us as well. True. Might uh, yeah. have, have something to say about mm. it. So they're one and three. And for the guys, uh, it is uh, Collingwood at Morwell. So second game at uh, Morwell down in the Latrobe Valley uh, as the final hit out before the season. And Touchwood, uh, that injury list stays relatively intact. It's uh, nil at the moment, if we can keep that in, in place Especially given North have got a few issues ahead of yeah. round one. Surely so. we're due a good year with injury. You'd hope. Yeah, the last two have been a nightmare. Last, 16, the last 20 years have been True. <laughs> we had one or two reasonable years. I think 16 was okay. But, um, yeah, apart from that, it's been, mm. a, been a bit of a tight slog. 16, we just missed finals. Yeah, that's so right. That's right. You look at that and that's basically go, all right, we yeah. need a good year. And we've had all our players who have had previous injuries almost full pre-seasons. Yeah, and, and, that's, the, and that's the best thing running into a season with. I think the only downside in 16 was that was the year Carlisle was suspended as a result of the Essendon business. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And it was his first year at the club. So that was where that one was at. And after a torrid first quarter, that was a good sign from Ferguson. Harvey now. He might kick his second goal. He's done everything in this quarter. And he's done a bit more now. Harvey. Tries to take Simmons on, does. Buys another 20 metres from hard on the boundary. That's oh. a sensational kick. Oh, Robert Harvey, excellent work. Ha uh, Harvey. Therefore, I declare Robert Harvey of the St Kilda Football Club the winner of the 1997 Grand well, when discussions are centred around who the greatest St Kilda player of all time is, there are probably five names that consistently get a mention and are just about the five that should get a mention every time. It is Daryl Bulldog, Ian Stewart, Tony Lockett, Nick Rewalt and Robert Harvey, who is our special guest on the podcast today. Uh, two-time Brownlow medalist, AFL Players Association MVP, eight All-Australians, four St Kilda best and fairest, finished in the top three on 10 occasions, is in the St Kilda team of the century and was a three-time EJ Witten medalist for Victoria. 383 games, which is a club record and number five in the AFL. Robert, thank you very much for your time. Oh, pleasure, boys. How are we going? Going very well. Not Nice to have you with us. Uh, I guess as we, we go back to the, the start of the journey, and it is, as we know, a, a fair way back. Your first coach was one of those names we just mentioned that would be in that conversation in, in Daryl Bulldock. It was uh, seen as an exciting time for the club, although 88 had been a, a bit of a battle. You were 16 years of age. You, you made your debut late in the season. And, and as I understand it, it came with a bit of a guarantee, which I imagine would have been good for a, a young player. I think Daryl Bulldock said that you would have your place in the side for that entire last month, regardless of what happened. Uh, yeah, well, that's a very long time ago now. Um, and uh, I was I said I was playing well before my time. I wasn't playing um, well enough to to probably hold my position. But uh, but Doc uh, Doc did, did tell me um, that God, I mean the season was gone for us anyway. We were last, I think, on the ladder. Um, he just said you'll be playing the last four games no matter what. So that was good reassurance for me because I was as I said I wasn't playing well enough. But 
and I probably, it probably was a probably a reflection of where we were at at the time because um, I started under 19s that year. I played the first eight games and then um, played six in the in the reserves and, and was straight to seniors. So um, it was a bit of a whirlwind, to be honest. I was still doing year 11 at, at uh, John Paul College, um, so my head was spinning. Um, and uh, yeah, as I said, I was probably a bit before my time, but I'm glad it, glad it all happened. It was a great experience, and I learned a lot from it. Rob, Nick Splitter here. Thanks for coming on the show, mate. Just a, a quick question about that time and, and being at that age. At, at that stage, did you have visions of, of being great or was it literally just trying to get out there and have a kick and, and run around and get a, well, get a jumper? No, nah, quite, quite honestly. like I, I, My my dad, um, the pre-season before that, like, so that it, going into that season, was dragging me in the car to get me to go to the under-19 training camp. I wouldn't go because I, I, I was so... Um, happy doing what I was doing at Seaford, and I, I was we, I just played in an under seventeen premiership there. Um, pretty much the only one I played in, and um, I just didn't want to go, and I, I was just didn't think it was it was I thought it was a waste of time. So dad dad really just dragged me in a car, saying at least you just got at least got to go, and um, you know I I just kept making it, like made a cut to the, to the final eighty, and then a cut to the final sixty, and then a cut to the final forty. But literally, I thought I was just playing out time to go back. To play at Seaford, and even the um, they used, they had that old probables v the possibles um, under nineteens game where there's two games on, and the the more likely ones are playing in the later game, and the the unlikely ones in the early game. And I was in the early game, um, and I managed just to squeak in and play round one um, where I played in the back pocket. I remember playing back pocket against Fitzroy at Rabin in my first under nineteens game, and um, as uh, as you guys or anyone would know that's seen me play, that's not going to last long for me playing back pocket. So I was on the bench by quarter time, and I definitely thought this was going to be it. This is definitely get your orders, get the ass, get back to Seaford and do your thing. And um, as fate would have it, they, I started on the bench next week, and, and one of our boom recruits, who's a country kid, went down in the second quarter in the midfield, and I got my chance there. And, I, um, yeah, I, did, I thought I'd... In a lot of ways, didn't look back. It was it was just the, the opportunity I needed. It was uh, talk about sliding doors. Anything could happen. I could have, I literally could have been back and out of the team in round two and never been never been seen again. Do you remember who was who that who that recruit from the country was? You know what? I've I've tried to think about that and I, I can't remember his name, but I, I know his face. I just can't remember his name. And um, if I had a, a playing list and that was at Windy Hill round two at Windy Hill, I, I'd probably pick his name, but I just can't I can't remember it. But it was um, yeah, it was a sliding door moment for sure. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Um, now, thinking about similar time, um, a few people probably do know that you were a little bit of a handy cricketer at that point. Was there much of a danger to that taking over football? And if you had, do you reckon you might have gone far with that or not? Or it, well, it, was it ever? Yeah. Well, no. I, I was definitely playing cricket. I, I, I loved it. I probably loved it more than well, I loved it as much as I did footy. And I was, I thought I was a little bit better at that stage of cricket, but. Um, I, I probably in the end I was probably limited. I played, um, ended up playing. I was at that about that time. I ended up playing Victorian under 19s and, and did all that. I was did all those things and I, I really loved it. And I, I remember in the early stages of um of the our under 19, my under 19 days, which was pretty brief, and um our full forward was no, none other than Shane Warne, um who was um. But at that stage, more more unfit, and he was our he was our full forward. But I, me- I remember clearly talking to him about because I think I was playing cricket at Oakley, and I was about to go play in Fitzroy Doncaster. 
So I was playing sub-district, about to go play district cricket, and he, he was already playing at St Kilda. But I remember him telling me he was playing in the fourths and the thirds, and like I said, oh, what, what do you do? And he said, oh, Lex, you know, playing in the thirds and fourths. And like, and, but he, he was more into his footy at stage, and, and um, yeah, as, as it sort of flipped around for us both there, and, you know, I remember two years later thinking, shit, that's, um, <laughs> that's warning. <laughs> he was playing... Test cricket for Australia and um, didn't take long. That's sliding doors if we yeah, ever see yeah. it. <laughs> a young bloke more into his footy becomes the greatest league spinner of all time and a young bloke more into his cricket goes on to win two Brownlows at the, uh, at yeah, the Saints and play 380 it did, games. It did. It, did. it flipped, flipped around. It was interesting. It was, it was, um, it was a good time. Now, that... that um, your, we spoke to Stuart Lowe a little bit about Moorabbin memories, which is quite topical with St Kilda being back there. But your second ever victory at Moorabbin was one of the most famous wins at Moorabbin, the, the game against Carlton in 89, where Plugger kicks 10, in, including the winning goal. I guess, can you just encapsulate Moorabbin for, for you and, and those memories? You would have played there for, for five years up until we bid farewell to the ground in, in 92. But uh, when that ground was really pumping, because as you emerged as a player, St Kilda emerged as a team and, and would obviously be playing finals by the early 90s. Um, yeah. Oh, look, and as as uh, as Lowy would have said last week, um, it's unforgettable to be, able to, to, have, to be able to say you played there. And um, my, my, my career went for a long time, 21 years, but... I think my fondest memories are of, of, uh, of those days, of the Moorabbin days, and just the, um, I mean, the atmosphere at that ground was something that you, yeah, and, and unless you actually were there to, to experience it, it's hard to describe it. And um, when when Lockett was rampaging and the, the noise that was made and the, the stands would shake, it was just, um, it was an experience that you just never forget. And it was a privilege to have been able to be a part of it. Um, not only that, to see um, just the, the terrace is full of people um, just in their routines. Waking, oh, I remember playing the reserves. You get there at 10.30 and people are setting up in the same spots same, every week with their barbecues and their, their, their same, you know, looking at their records out, looking at the young players. And, and it was just a, it was a, it was an amazing experience. Like it was, it was, um, you know, it was a phenomenal thing and um, something I'll never forget. By extension to that, um, we spoke about Tony Lockett there. You're, record over the course of your career with some of the greatest forwards the club has ever had. So you started your career delivering the ball to Tony Lockett. Stuart Lowe was obviously around the mark. And then Fraser Garrick, Nick Rewalt, obviously later on in your career. You could argue, probably throwing the dock in there, that they're four of the best five forwards St Kilda have ever produced. Uh, so as much as they were blessed to have you delivering the footy to them, what was it like breaking out of the middle and always having someone like that leading up at the footy? Uh, look... And as you said, like when you when you reel off the names like that, like you didn't really have to be perfect with your your kicking or your delivery. They they do the rest for you, but they're all different in their their own ways. And like um, Plugger, and and you throw in Strelow himself. His his hands were unbelievable. Like uh, I think I've seen a guy take a contested mark like Stuart Lowe. He was unbelievable marking of the ball. Um, and Plugger, obviously in his own way, like just. Um, you just had to get the ball somewhere near him in a one-on-one. That, if it was slightly to his advantage, he'd mark it every time. Like he was, he was clearly the best player I've ever seen. Like and, and just the talent that guy had on him, it was a phenomenal player. And obviously Rewalt, who um, more of an athlete, just such what a great athlete he was, and so courageous as well. But um, he, they're all so different, but in their own ways, just so brilliant. And um, 
Yeah, when, well, probably at the time you take it for granted because you always thought it's had a good forward there. And then now I'm in coaching and you see how hard it is to find A-grade, forward, A-grade you know, forwards in your team. We're just always so blessed to have those forwards in our team. And um, I think, you know, it, it's sort of something that we're, the fans could always connect with, having that forward in the in the team. And like they, they just loved it and, and we loved it. It was... Um, even when Lockett went, you know, you know, I think everyone thought that John had fall down, but you know, life went on, and we found Rewalt and Gehrig and, um, and and Stu Lowe stepped up, and you know, it was just a um, yeah, it was just a great time. Uh, just on that, there's there's a, a bit of footage doing the rounds on social media this week because of uh, Fraser Gehrig's birthday uh, against North Melbourne. I think it was oh three oh four ish. Clip of of you streaming down the middle with about twenty seconds to go, thirty seconds to go. And delivering it long to Fraser Gehrig in the goal square for the the winning goal. Do you do you remember that game? Do you remember what was going through your mind in that moment? Did did you see him there, kind of on his own, thinking we've got this? Um, no, nah, well, I, I I vaguely remember the game, um, but and I, I'm not a I'm so I'm hopeless with social media. As anyone <laughs> would know me would know, um, but all the Collingwood players um, when during yesterday had seen it and they're asking me about it. <laughs> Um, and you know they, they they were embellishing it a bit. Like Taylor Adams is saying, I was steaming through the middle. What do you say? I was like streaming through the middle. I said, "Man, now you now know you full shit." <laughs> I was about thirty thirty four at the time, but I was in space. I know I was in a lot of space, and um, I, I reckon the ball like it was. I don't know how long it was it was in the last minute of the game. I would have thought, and we were a couple of points down. But um, the, the it's just back then the game was so like open. Even then, um, it was literally went from deep in our defence all the way and to to Fraser within ten seconds. I reckon it was really quick. And now I just remember seeing him. He used to love those angle leads, so it was more of a one where he was on one side of the field rather than coming straight up, and he was leading back to the diagonal towards goal. So it was all you had to do was just put it in that big pole of space. He was always going to run onto it. And uh, and he was only 15 out, so it was, but yeah, it was a good a good memory. And um, he was he was a he was a ripper player, um, Fraser, and like yeah, he lives around the corner from me now, so I see him a little bit um, still. Um, and what a great man! Now we've seen the return of State of Origin in sorts just recently, which you were involved with a little bit yourself. Um, but going back to when you were playing there and lining up in the big V, and just just how much did it mean back then, especially? Being able to also line up alongside teammates like Plugger and Lowy and uh, Berkey and them, and just, obviously we don't really have that anymore. But how big was it back in the day? Oh, it was pretty big. Like my first, one of my first games. Like I remember getting on the plane. I think I was nineteen or twenty, I reckon, and um, I was sitting in between Tim Watson and Simon Madden, and I was a mad Essendon supporter as a kid. So I just remember just pinching myself, thinking, "What how good is this?" Um, and and all the way. Um, to South Australia, I was just telling them how much stories about me going to Windy Hill and watching those two play. So yeah, I'll never forget it. And um, <clears throat> it was just the the whole experience back then with EJ and Bobby Skilton, um, and then later days Dipper and Jared Healy. They just they had a real passion for it. So they drove those officials and um, those guys who run the program. They just they just loved it. So they drove it so hard, um, and the players really bought into it and obviously once the in-state teams come in it drifted a bit but um yeah it was a, it was a pretty good experience and i remember i, I remember i was telling a few of the 
because I, I coached the um, assistant coach to the local the game last week, and I was telling a, bit, a few of the players just about how, how it used to unfold. Like we I used to play Saturday at Moorabbin, um, and we'd go to the disco and you know the big night Saturday night. Um, you know, recovery Sunday. Um, Sunday was you know it was pretty loose at the club, and then. <laughs> Monday, Monday we used to get. I was saying to the players, we used to get, we used to get flogged a bit on the Mondays um, at training. So we, we'd often train for a couple of hours on Monday night, which players never do now. So you, you'd train on Monday night, and then you'd fly out to um, to South Australia on the Tuesday, play play State of Origin Tuesday night, um, and anyone who's on those trips would know there was a big there was a big um, after game celebration. The EJ and um, Bobby and the boys who run that program, they, they, you'd, back, you'd back at the hotel, be drinking, and before you knew it, it was when it was Wednesday morning, and you'd be you'd be going back to um, to get on the plane um, straight to the straight to the airport, and and then you'd fly back to to Melbourne straight to to Moorabbin, train again um, on the Wednesday, and then play again on the Saturday. It was just a, it was a, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. Play three games in a week. Um, just like a carnival sort of atmosphere. It was really good. Your memories of those Brownlow years, 97 and, and 98, are contrasting years for, for you and, and where the club was at. Obviously, 97, you won a Brownlow. Uh, we know the, the circumstances around Chris Grant, but St Kilda was five days away from playing in a historic grand final. Then the following year, you won the Brownlow easily with a record number of votes, but Stan Elves, I think, had been stacked on the same day, and, and we'd had a, a relatively disappointing end to that season. So... Brilliant times for for you personally, but I imagine that the weeks themselves couldn't possibly have been more different. No, well, <clears throat> when I think back to those times, I think my overriding emotion on those two years is sort of what went wrong. Like I, I just remember that first Brownlow, like that night, thinking, "Oh, we, we're playing the grand final." All your all your mind, because we, I went there with Spider Everett in the car straight from training, like on Monday night, just and thinking, "How good is this? We're playing the grand final." Um, and then the Brownlow sort of happened, and um, but we were straight back, on, you know, just with our focus on the game, and it was just such a great time. And then, obviously, you know, the whirlwind of the '98 and what happened with Stan Ells, and when I think back now, like all those years ago, I just think, what, what happened? Like, what, 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 you know, we were just so so good there for that period, and um, yeah, I just I still sort of try, try and get my head around how that sort of unravelled as it did. Um, in that time, because it was it was a really I had so much promise and so much hope, and I think you know even the grand final itself, you know, to be up at half time and not play our best in the second half just was so disappointing. So it, yeah, my, my overriding emotion is just almost like yeah, trying to what did happen? Like I, it was just I, I don't understand how that sort of totally you know within within two years after that '98 season we're on the bottom of the ladder again. It was just so so weird in that, that experience. So, yeah, it's, I look back on it really mixed with mixed emotions because it, obviously it was a great time and I was probably in the peak of my my career at, physically and as a player, but I just, yeah, just can't, I just can't work out what happened with, um, with our team. Now, you did mention you spider over it there. Uh, we've had him on a previous episode. Now, he mentioned something about you being a bit of a blackjack player. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he, he, uh, he told us he told us that pretty much you'd chuck your money out there and then let them play. <laughs> much <laughs> much truth to that story, or well, yeah, I'd love to know what else he said because he, 
um, in what context he said it. Because uh, no, nah, we we used to, it was usually late at night, and I get I imagine that's what he's getting at. So, um, <laughs> but I, I hardly ever played. But um, I just know <laughs> they used to have um, we used to play blackjack together, and um, he uh, he used to uh, he used to you know you know he's like he carries on. He's um, but yeah, I let him tell all those stories because he's. Um, <laughs> Was, I can't really remember too much about it. It was about six months ago, I think you told us, and I'm pretty sure there were a couple of Jim Beam and Cokes involved and, and that sort yeah, of thing yeah. in the background. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Harves, obviously at the top of this segment, uh, Parker ran off a, a, a list of accolades and, and you know honours that, that you picked up throughout your career. On top of that, I think Mike Sheehan named you in his 50 all-time greatest players of the AFL in about 2008, 2009. Is there something that, that sticks out either in terms of an achievement, an accolade, or just a moment in your career that, that kind of sticks out as your, your number one moment? Um, probably not, not a moment, like not, not a, not one thing, probably the, it's more, uh, and there, uh, as you get older, like, and I, as I said, I'm still involved in footy, so still, I'm still around young guys all the time. It's probably more just, um, you know, or you just see teammates. Like, uh, the, the, I think the thing that probably frustrates me the most is um, constantly ha- having to feel like I'm defending, you know, the club, or our, you know, our era, our period or something. We just had... We had some really, really good people um, at the club. Then there still is now. Um, I played with some really good people as players, not just players, but as people. And um, it just, it probably really hit home to me um, in Spuds stuff last year, with, with all the Spuds um, circumstances. Just, yeah, just it makes you reflect. And the, the, the real close guys you play with makes you even closer. Um, and it just makes you think you reflect so much on what good times we did have. Like most of those were off the field, but we we get together more more now than we ever did. Like because it's so so important to us, and um, there, there's enough because we didn't play in that premiership or we just didn't quite get there. It doesn't mean that was all to waste. It was a really a really good place to be. Um, I wouldn't don't take anything back, or I didn't, don't regret anything, and so I'm really proud of what the, the people. Um, and the club that it was, so um, it was probably it's probably more of a, a just an over more an overall thing than anything than just um, you know like and for whatever reason with St Kilda there's just that there's just that emotion attached to it that's always been there and, and that's something that goes back to Moravan, Waverley, Eddie had um, you know it's it's something that's always there with the club and it's it's something that I'm just I'm it was a privilege to be a part of, so um, I'm really, really proud and happy that I do that. And you know, you had Stu Lowe on the, the show last week; he would say the same. He's one of my best mates. He'd say the same thing. Um, it's it's just a great place, and I, I really uh, I feel privileged to have played there. And even from the relative outside position as spectators, we do know what you mean when you say there is sort of something there. It is a hard one to explain. And I guess on that note, well done. We, we, we said that to Stewie as well. Well done to you and to he and, and everybody else, A, at the funeral, but also at the best and fairest last year for, for your comments. Last one from me, which is, a, I guess, a two-parter. When asked about the, the best game you played, the, the one that comes up most frequently is probably the qualifying final against 
Adelaide. Again, it's a, probably one that you look on, look back on maybe as a missed opportunity given what happened in the prelim. But is that perhaps the, uh, the, the standout game that you remember most that you've played? And I guess the, the second part from me is there's only four people that have played more games than you, and they played most of their career relatively injury-free. That wasn't necessarily the case for you. Knee Rico, shoulder Rico, soft tissues, broken ankle, all that sort of stuff. Uh, we know your preparation was meticulous, but what do you put your longevity down to, I guess, as a second part of that, as to how you were able to survive in the game for so long? Um, a lot of luck, I think. And you re- reel off those um, those injuries and uh, all, that, all that stuff. Well, I think... I think a lot of it is just um, is a lot. Of, it, it is it is a lot of luck. Like a lot of guys I played with um, were far more um, better prepared than I was. Like I, I trained hard, definitely, but I, I wouldn't say um, you know I overly looked after myself too too well. I didn't. I wasn't great with a lot of stuff, and um, that's just the way I was. But um, I, I definitely trained really hard, and and maybe that that's why I did break down a bit in the fact I just yeah I didn't. Like I look at a guy like Scotty Penabry, who I coach now, and he he, he he prepares so much better than I did, you know. Like so, um, no, I think a lot of luck, a lot of um, a lot of it is drive and desire. Like I, I just was so driven to um, to play, you know. I just always felt like we were just around the corner from that premiership, and even 2004, five, six, seven, eight, even 2008 when I finished playing the prelim, like. We were just so close all through those years, and I don't know. I was just thinking maybe one more, just to give us, a, you know, get me get me over the line to the. Like I just felt like it was a, an inch away all the time, and um, that's probably what drove me the most to keep playing on. Um, in the end, you know, I look back now, I probably might have played too long, but um, I just felt like, you know, oh, you know, it would drive you just to do that that extra bit, or just you know that extra session, or I just the fire just didn't go out because I probably because I didn't. Maybe if I had won a flag in 2005 or whatever it was, it might have. But yeah, because it was still, I was still chasing the dream. It was, you know, I was so so hungry all the time. That's probably what what made me play play for so long. Halves, when you when you retired in 2008, it seemed like you moved almost seamlessly from uh, a playing career into coaching and and being an assistant coach at Carlton. Uh, the senior coach at Carlton at the time was none other than Brett Ratton. What was it like working under under Rats, and and what should Saints fans expect from a, a Ratten led team? Yeah, no, it was a great, it was a really good experience for me. And uh, the thing is, with my transition, like I, in two thousand seven and eight, I had a really good relationship with Ross Lyon, who was coaching St Kilda at the time. So I, I said to him all along, like whenever you want me to finish, just tap me on the shoulder, and you know I'm done. Because and we had we had I was sort of always in close conversation with him not only about me but about the team because he was only just starting out himself so we had a really like a, a, a close and that probably sparked me a little bit into the coaching side of it because I was just really probably take I hadn't experienced a coach like him before like just yeah, for whatever reason I, I just I don't know it just, it just resonated with me and then going to Carlton Getting away from St Kilda, like somewhere you've just known all your life, like just to get somewhere different, like Carlton was was great. And yeah, Rats Rats was super. He was so good, such a um, relaxed, loves a laugh, um, loves flair and an attack and, and, and excitement. And that's that's what I think what St Kilda fans could could expect with him. And 
I just overall, he's just a really good person, and um, I, I really enjoyed my time. I only had two years there, but really enjoyed that time with him. And to be honest, he was probably a bit stiff in the first time round with Carlton, so mm. um, it's great he's got a second chance, and uh, hopefully he does really well at the Saints. And just to finish off, basically, there's been a story that's gone around for years and years now. Um, you came out with a plantar fascia injury. And we've heard the stories of starting jumping off a chair to jumping off the table to jumping off the top of the fridge to try and get this injury sorted. Um, do you want to put to bed exactly how high you were jumping from and what you were doing and anything? Just basically a little rundown for anyone who doesn't know the story behind it. Yeah, well, I, don't, I tend, not, tend not to get through any speaking or um, <laughs> quick Q&As without getting asked about it. It's, uh, I, I get um, podiatry um, students going through uni ringing me up saying I'm doing this thesis on plantar fascia and I heard you did this this thing and um, so it's, it's something that never quite tends to leave me this one but um, no, I, at the time it just felt just was felt like um, common sense to be honest in the, I think Fraser had it and Cozzy had it at the time and they both um, they both didn't get better until they snapped it through which took took them months a couple of months i think of playing footy and it because it would just tear gradually and then every week tear a little bit tear a little bit until eventually it would snap and then for whatever reason the once you snapped it it was fine so it was like almost like you didn't need it and it's it was weird and i only just started getting it so i just said to the physio um well if, if those two boys went through all that pain and I was I was I was thinking I was 33 or something at the time, so I was thinking I was probably going to be in my last year, and I just didn't want to experience that in my last year. So I said to him, like, when I come tomorrow, it's going to be done. <laughs> and he sort of laughed at me, and um, I just made sure all the family was out, all the kids were out, and Danielle was out, and I just went out in the backyard, and um, I think we had a um, backyard sort of furniture table that was probably a bit bigger than a normal. A normal kitchen table, probably, I don't know how high, but high enough. So just jumped off that about um, 20 times, I reckon. Um, and your, your natural um, instinct is to um, protect it. So it took me a while just to have the ball to so let it go. You know, once I let it go, it just it just snapped completely. And it bruised up, and I was rolling around the backyard, you know, like a little squealing, you know, squealing <laughs> away. And, um, but, and, it, and, it black, and the bruise came straight up, black, and... Um, I was brand new, and I, I, I turned up at the club the next day, and um, and sure enough, uh, showed, showed the physio, and said, "Told you, and it was just, it was done, and that was it." Didn't, didn't um, yeah, and I, I did get some calls like for a while, like from other, other clubs, people from other clubs who have had it, like because it's such a frustrating injury, like it's like an, someone's driving a nail on your foot, and um, yeah, I had a guy, one, one particular guy from Interstate, who rang me and said. Like he's been battling this for ages, and I suggested what he what he do. But he he took it a bit far. He jumped off a fence, <laughs> um, fixed his plantar fascia, broke his ankle. I think he's out for twelve months. So, uh, so he took it a bit far. But um, no, nah, it was uh, it was one of those things. That you just I don't know. Footy does funny things to you sometimes, and um, yeah, it was, it was I was pretty desperate to to fix it up. There are a lot of reasons why you were a, a club great, and that's not a bad way to finish, I think, in terms of that level of commitment. Harves, thank you very much for, for giving us some of your time. Good luck uh, with the Magpies and, and everything that, uh, that you're doing in a coaching sense as well. And, um, yeah, thank you for your, uh, your contribution to the club over such a long period of time. Uh, thanks for having me on, boys. Appreciate it.
Yeah, well, everyone always feels good in pre-season. Um, obviously, we've got the real stuff starts in a couple of weeks and got another another little run at it again on, on Sunday against Collingwood. But um, so far, pre-season's been um, pretty good and um, hopefully we can just take that form into, into round one. But obviously, there's got to be some little tweaks and things we need to work on and, and keep on going and we want to improve um, each week. So. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's probably important that we start to, I guess, nail our game sort of structure and style that we want to play. So um, I'm not sure, quite sure if that's the way we're going to go, but if we do go that way, then um, yeah, it'll be game on. Well, they were the voices of Bradley Hill and Tim Membry in the lead-up to Sunday's Marsh Community Series match against Collingwood. And also a special mention before we welcome our next guest into the studio of the passing of Bill Young, former St Kilda star, 88 years of age, played 94 games for the Saints and kicked 276 goals. He won the league goal-kicking in his first year in 1956, won a retrospective Coleman medal for that. But speaking of Coleman medals, John Coleman is the only other player to win the league goal-kicking in his first season at the level. So Vale to Bill, one of the club greats from the 1950s and early 1960s. He's going to jump inside the club now with senior analyst at the football club, Darren O'Shaughnessy, joining us. And Darren, thank you very much for your time. Uh, my pleasure. Good to be here. I guess explaining that title to us, we spoke off air that, that sometimes titles can be a, a little bit vague, but if you were to describe your your job day-to-day at the Saints, what would it be? Yeah, so the title's Senior Analyst, which can cover a lot of different things, but um, mainly my job's just dealing with data. So analysing it, uh, communicating to the coaches and to the recruiters and to the list managers what that means and even to the um, the club as a whole. Um, trying to you know, find our own researchers, trying to do things that are different from the other clubs, as well as uh, keeping a hold on on what makes sense from other sports. So there's, uh, yeah, it's sort of a wide brief. Um, any way that we can improve the 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 data analysis at the club, the culture around sort of decision making based on uh, the best use of of what's out there. So how bigger. Um, thing has data become these days. I mean, the old football used to be basically, we're playing this team, this team's how they line up, this is who you'll be on, that's it. Is there positions made because of certain ways players play games? Is the way that you'll bring a player on at this time because of how they work or how other teams, things you pick up from what they do? Um, How much is based around it, data these days? And there's a lot to that. So the... um Different clubs use it in, in different ways. Um, I think if you're digging down far enough to say, should this guy should this guy from a strategic point of view come on at the 10-minute mark or the 15-minute mark, you, you're making more of a guess or, or making too much of it. But um, there's certainly management of the performance data, and we, we have a really good guy, Daniel Hoffman's joined us uh, in the last few months, who deals with um, the information science and the, the data analysis of our performance data. So he's across uh, that along with our existing performance staff. Um, yeah, so yes, there's a lot of data and AFL has got this history right through VFL, right back to you know the start of the competition that it was rich in collected data and this language around um, you know how many touches players are getting and, and what's important. Um, in a way, some other sports have really moved ahead in the last few years. There's there's player tracking data. There's all sorts of things that, that's going on that we don't quite, we haven't quite kept up with in the AFL, but there's still more than enough to keep several of us busy. In how much of your, I guess, day to day is taken up in in using that data to predict 
outcomes and and kind of the you know the future strength of the list or a player or, or whatnot. Yeah, so there's a number of different projects on the go all the time. So um, at some stage we look at what seems to give the best bang for buck out of the time that our analysts have to improve our performance on the field, long-term, short-term. So in terms of list management projects, we go back over past successful teams, see what was uh, was common about their list profiles, their demographics, where their strengths were. We've got ongoing projects. We've we've got a PhD student who's looking at um, past recruiting strategies and who seems to have been over or undervalued based on their statistics in different junior competitions. Uh, We look at, obviously, every player in the competition as well. So our pro scout, Steve Lenny, who you've had on the the podcast, um, he is is still the the pro scout and looks at, um, evaluates the players in, in different ways and we feed into that. Um, and then there's, yeah, game day strategy, um, monitoring what's going on live. So what seems to be costing us today or where are we getting our, our, um, our lead from or our, our deficit, hopefully not too much of a deficit. Um, yeah. So from week to week, uh, there's probably five of those projects going on and, and new ones coming on all the time as, as our staff come up with ideas. How tricky is it to assess what data is actually relevant and, and what isn't? Sometimes you could have data that's... Uh, can be almost erroneous or, or something along those. Yeah, that that's right. Is it? Is that part of the challenge where you're almost looking at it, saying, "Well, is this an outlier? Is this common? Should we be paying attention to that? Is everyone else paying attention to this?" Yeah, and that's where it's great to be skeptical and skeptical in the right ways. And you'll find most of the the top coaches, in fact, most of the people working in coaching in the AFL have a pretty good instinct for what's crap in the numbers. So, <laughs> you know, if, if you came to a coach and said, oh, you know, we just need to uh, have 10 more kicks a game, that's obviously nonsense because there's no context to it. So it's about getting the context of that data a bit better. Um, so collecting our own data, we've got an analysis academy that um, Chris Mackay started up last year that we're getting extra layers around what we're doing at contests, what we're doing at stoppages especially. Um, and we then feed that in to the chains of possession that that are going on for us and for the opposition and uh, which ones seem to, to be most successful. And then we can do that across every team in the league as well. Do many of the players chase much from you? Or is it more a case of the coaches taking and go, here, this is what we want you to know? Or, or is it a couple down there to go, no, I want to know a few things or... So the the more traditional sort of analyst player relationship is centred around video um, that, you know, that we cut clips for them. I I don't really come from that traditional analyst background. I'm more out of the the data area and occasionally I'll talk to groups of players about stuff, but it's really more of a coach's role or or the traditional footy analyst role to to do that. Um, So there'll be specific times where maybe I can express it to them, but yeah, it doesn't happen too often. We, we've had Steve, as, as you mentioned, and Chris Tochi on the, the show uh, towards the end of, of last season, talking about recruitment and draft and trade and free agency and all that sort of stuff. How much did you have to do in that, in that period? Um, yeah, that, that was obviously all of the postseason up, up leading to the draft. So I've got a bit of experience with, with the AFL, with the draft points system. I was one of the, the creators of that. So had a little bit of an insight into how you might value uh, picks, you know, future picks, past picks, what's in the draft this year. Uh, we were obviously pretty happy to 
use our meagre haul of draft picks for some from some pretty good um, guys that have come down the club. Um, but yeah, it really is about um, a bit of wargaming as well. So what might other clubs be doing? Um, how can we potentially exploit another club and, and they have too much of something? And every club is doing this. There, there are endless discussions and endless phone calls between clubs about different scenarios as well. So we just try and put a, a sort of rational decision-making layer on that, not make big mistakes is probably the, the, big, the big thing. Do you prefer to drum down on, say, specific data? We, we look at champion data and, and how they might pull everything they have and then come up with these lists that, that most of us sort of scoff at where... We looked at last year where Geelong in the back half of the year were clearly the best defensive team in the competition and champion data had them, whatever it was, 12th. And then Brisbane, I think, had the 17th best forward line and and GWS had the 14th best midfield. Yet most of us look at it and think that's rubbish. Mm. Uh, But that's if you take every aspect of data, that's the sort of answer it gives you. Whereas you guys might might be more specific to... Well, it's not just who's got the best midfield, who's got the best at clearances, scoring from stoppages, and, and each specific outcome. Yeah, so every rating model is flawed, and, yeah. and I believe the the champion one is a really good individual player rating model, and, and um, I've had discussions with, with them over time about it. Um, but when you then just say, right, who are the players that we've got based on the times they've interacted with the ball, and that tells you what a good defence is, well, it's it's complete nonsense. So we know that Geelong's got a great defence. Um, the, yeah, the, the defence is the hardest thing to rate. So the, what we're trying to do is prevent the other team getting a quality shot at goal, you know, in whichever way we can. And there a lot of ways of doing that are just with positioning, with getting an extra number, with things that will never be recorded on a traditional mm. stat sheet. So... Um, yeah, well, I respect a lot of, of what Champion does, and, and I worked there for, for several years. Um, yeah, I think putting it back together in that way was probably a bad example of how to use it. Yeah. Now, you're at Hawthorne during the very successful years that they had there. Um, without going into it too deeply or anything like that, what's something that just jumped out at you while you're at, that, at the club and looking at going, this is where they're way ahead, or this is something they struggle with but are able to basically make up for it somewhere else, or... What what's something that really jumped out? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. The first one, I've, I grew up a St Kilda supporter, so um, welcome no, back. Yeah. <laughs> um, knowing that sort of culture of a St Kilda supporter, that you have a loss, and you sort of go into a bit of a spiral. You know, that's <laughs> oh well, it's just another one of those. You know, maybe we'll get another win in a few weeks. Hawthorne, after they had a loss, even a bad loss, it was like, right, we're up and about, we're going to win next week, and th- that was totally throughout there. And they also lived that that family club club sort of um, motto that they had as well, that everyone had care for everyone else in the club. It sounds a bit weird, but it's, it's, it's the way clubs are going as well, that uh, you could be you know walking next to anyone, whether it was Luke Hodge or the bootstutter, and you could have a conversation of mutual respect. So um, they did a lot of that stuff, right? And then the other one was around strategy and, and having someone like David Rath and the other good sort of brains that have been poached by other clubs over time. Um, there to guide their decision making and to bring experts in from different areas to to tell them things they mightn't know. Was there something when when you arrived at St Kilda? Was it last off season? Was there was there something that you kind of noticed within either the administration or the footy department that, based on your time, you know, champion data at Hawthorne, etc., and and in your experience with data that that we as a club were missing that that we we weren't strong enough at that we needed to get better at. Um, we really didn't have anyone 
building our own tools to uh, analyze the data in different ways. So we were getting pretty good information from champion data, um, but they're, apart from individuals with their own expertise, like Steve Lenny, who would take the data and do things with it, there wasn't really um, a statistician or someone with mathematical background to go through and say, well, maybe we can adjust it like this. You know, just something as simple as uh, we know that's a team that's poor at stoppages, let's nudge the data that way. Just little things that give you a more reliable view. So, um, but the club as a whole and, and under people like, you know, um, Simon Lefleen and Matt Finnis, that they're really into this evidence-based organisation sort of stuff. So getting the people in, getting the right decisions out of a group, um, that part of it, they're really respectful and hearing different views. What's the competition's sort of next buzz area or right now the the most important aspect of that data analysis? Is it things like GPS or, or, or what, what's the, the one that, that seems to now be the, the sleeper? Yeah, it, it really is either GPS or video um, player tracking to to get that sort of information. We, we've seen the sort of impact that clubs like Liverpool have had in the, the in soccer, um, German soccer clubs as well. When you've got quality data um, around the spacing of players, and in our game it's even more important. You know, I've, I've talked to soccer analysts about, you know, we've got 18 players on the field instead of your 10 outfielders. We can have passes in the air. We can have passes that you can't mark. And... Um, the level of complexity is just enormous. And so we're using a lot of the time is just watching vision and saying, right, let's have an argument about where this guy should have been out of the, out of the 18 that are playing a full team defense or out of the 13 that are behind the ball. Um, what's our ideal shape. And that's a really hard thing for a computer to do, to, to mm. analyze that. So once we can get hold of that data reliably, yeah, that, that will explode. But at the moment with what we have, um, it's really just being more consistent around it and being responsive as well. So giving um, giving the individual experts, the coaches, the, the recruiters access to tools that allow them to ask better questions and, and to design those tools guided by what they think they want to know. Um, so just, just on that, you, you mentioned giving the recruiters better tools. Uh, I might put you a little bit on the spot here. Um, Obviously, we, we had a pretty big trade period. Um, a number of experienced players came onto the list from other clubs. Can you give us one metric, one variable for each of those players that, that <laughs> kind of was the reason or one of the, the reasons that we targeted that particular player? So obviously, you know, a few of them are going to be self-explanatory. Bradley Hill, and you've got pace and skill. Um, but Paddy Ryder, Dan Butler, Zach Jones. What, what were the reasoning, Dougal Howard, uh, behind some mm. of those moves from an, a data perspective? I, I don't think I can tell you anything new there. It's pretty much public what the, the qualities of these guys are. And, um, you know, Brad Hill is in some ways the, the league best, you know, at, at um, repeated, really quick running. Um, you know, Zach Jones has got that outside speed and, and some unrecognised, you know, um, capabilities around um, how he, you know, attacks from defence as well. Um, Paddy Ryder is, is obviously a perfect fit for someone like Rowan Marshall at the different stages of their career and both being really good forwards. Like Rowan had a terrific breakout year as a, a ruck and with his positioning around the ground last year, but he's almost a better forward. So it's um, a, a terrific um, sort of balance to have there. Um, yeah, I, I think I probably can't give you anything uh, that you haven't 
already discussed <laughs> about those guys, but it's, it's uh, yeah, we're really happy. The, the, the trick will be using those individual skills and fitting them into the roles that we want because that, that's always the challenge with, with new guys at the, in their first year at a club, and at the moment the, the signs are really good. It's probably hard to, to predict things like improvement, but do you sort of sit down and ever have an overall as a club and say, well, this is where we think we're at based on, on all of this, and it might be a difficult one to answer, but... Do you have a, an assessment as to where you think we're at in the in the scheme of things going into this season? Uh, yeah, so we obviously did um, you know, a pretty harsh review on 2018 and then uh, did the same you know, layers of review on 2019. Um, a lot of things went from being bottom four to being a middling club. So we're not really outstanding as any, at anything and uh, that's what we need to work on. We need to find a signature that says... This is St Kilda as a winning side. Um, but, yeah, the, the signs are there. So we were a nine-win team last year. When we looked at all the metrics in different areas, that's probably about where we should have been. Our percentage was only 81 or 82 at the end of the year. We needed to improve our goal-kicking, but we also had some bad luck. The teams against us converted at ridiculous rates, and, and when you go back to the vision and, and go back to the individual shots, we were a bit unlucky with um, some of those margins. So... Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot to build on from that. And we also had a very young list on the park with all the injuries last year. So from a demographic point of view and from what we think will naturally improve, um, we're in a really good position. And going off the numbers that you see and what you're looking at, and I guess a little bit predicting to steal a term, who do you think is on the bubble? Who's going to burst this year that someone (laughs) we, we really need to watch out for that may not be one that we're looking at normally or... Yeah, I know Ben Long's getting a bit of buzz, and, and justifiably, he's getting a lot of the ball in his new mm. role. Um, I'm looking forward to, to seeing some of the young guys, obviously, out on the park. Um, hopefully, Ryan Burns gets a bit of a run, because he, he's a, a promising talent. Max King is, is the obvious one that we want to see play, um, you know, as soon as he's able. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's seeing it all mesh together. So, yeah, a lot of my job is just getting the team metrics and the individual assessments. The coaches are spending hours and hours on that. So I can add a bit of statistics to that, but when they know what the role is that player is going to play, my measurement of it is kind of superfluous. They're getting most of that information themselves. Uh, another new face at the club also come over from, Car- from not from Carlton, from Hawthorne, Jared Roughhead. Yeah. Um, it's, it's been pretty widely publicised that he doesn't have a specific role, I guess, is that he's part of the footy department. He works a little bit in recruitment. He works a little bit in coaching and a few different things. But what what sort of important – how important has it been for our young group to have a guy like him out on the field in training sessions and, and in the office to be able to bounce questions off? Uh, it's, it's enormous, yeah. He, you can see the respect that everyone has for Ruff. And, um, uh, yeah, as you said, his role changes – you know, depending on the time of the season. So he was quite involved with the list management as well as learning what he what he needed to know, giving his feedback uh, to the process. And now it, it's obviously, um, you know, coaching the forwards as well. As, sorry, not being a, 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 um, an advisor for the forwards and uh, his overall, um, you know, seniority within the game. He, he, the other day he pointed out, you know, he, he got into... Um, Hawthorne at 17 and left it at 33. So that, that's half his, his mm. life in that role. And yeah, he just brings a lot of that uh, lived experience to players who are only just starting out. Final one from, from me, does, does that sort of, the, those that are in charge of those areas, does that 
always win or will sometimes there be that conflict like there is in most departments where the coach will want something. And I guess the example I give is doing a bit of work with Terry Wallace. He spoke about when he first arrived at Richmond that um, the physical team or the medical team would have their certain metrics that they went by and uh, he was in the middle of a drill and he heard a whistle blow and all of a sudden the players walked off the ground in the middle of a drill and he was looking around going what's happening there and it was actually the the medical staff that blew the whistle and said that's it that's that's the allocated minutes for the week and he couldn't believe it and he was tearing shreds off them saying well if I want to keep training we're going to keep training Uh, is there ever that sort of pushback where the, the the fitness staff will say he's probably done enough and the coach will say well no he hasn't not yet um, that's been one of the really positive aspects that I've seen at St Kilda. It's a pretty um, uh, pretty experienced high-performance group there. Um, and they're in constant conversation with the coaches, with Brett Ratton and the other coaches, about here's the load that this player needs this week. Here's what we're going to try and do in training. Here's maybe the extra that he needs to do. And I haven't seen a single argument about mm. it, which maybe that's not a good sign. But, um, <laughs> no, that they're really... Um, they're tracking quite well what uh, needs to be done. And, and the, you know, we've got a wooden table in here. I'll just touch wood. <laughs> you know, the injury list at the moment says nil, like uh, mm. that's unheard of. I haven't seen that in a very long time. <laughs> no, not for us anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Darren, thank you very much for, uh, for stopping by and giving us uh, some of those insights. It's a massive year. Good luck for, uh, for you and the team. We certainly hope that the, uh, the numbers keep tracking the right way. Thank you. Thanks, Darren. Well, that was Darren O'Shennessy joining us in the studio. It's been another big edition of Unplugged. Uh, coming up against Collingwood this week and then in the AFLW, it is Carlton on Saturday night. And really, they do need a result if they are going to shape this season at all. Boys, uh, we've got one hit out to uh, obviously finalise things before North Melbourne in round one. Really important, really important. I think that, I think we go in with a really strong team and I'm, I'm keen to see how we fare against what is a, a legitimate contender. Uh, in terms of their playing list and, and midfield especially. Um, and, of course, it be interesting to see how Rowan Marshall and Paddy Wright go against Brodie Grundy. Yeah, definite, definite um, opponent to have a real good look against. Um, they're going to be right up there again this year. I mean, yes, it's still just a practice match, as people will say. But, I mean, yeah, get a good look at who, they, who, who they're bringing into their side as well, what they're going to change, what we can counteract with when, for when later on we came on, come up against him in the season. Um, but it's just going to give a good idea where we are running into round one. Yep, absolutely. Yep. If you'd like to get involved at any stage, we've had a couple of requests for the stickers as well, and we'll get those out to you. But if you are keen on the Unplugged bumper stickers, you can email us unplugged at gmail.com. You can hit us up on all of the socials. Nick, it's uh, at Unplugged on Twitter. Or at uh, Unplugged, at Unplugged on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, slash Unplugged on Facebook and at Unplugged Podcast on Insta. Yep. So uh, send us some questions. We'll go through all of that as the season goes. So it'll be a weekly episode once we do draw towards uh, round one. So our next show, we'll be previewing our hit out with the Kangaroos and wrapping all of the action from the Marsh Community Series. Thank you, guys. Thanks, mate. Cheers.